GM Legendary. Welcome back to another episode of NFT World. We are on episode 10. First double digit episode, Legendary. How are you feeling about that? GM, that's exciting. We're getting in the double digits. Next milestone is going to be the triple digits. Um, I like it. I'm happy with it. Yeah, double digits sounds good. Triple digits to come. Maybe if we execute on all of the plans that we've just spent the last two hours discussing, yeah. we might be able to get there pretty fast if we're upping our production content in some way. Mm-hmm. Which we'll certainly do, but we are still a bit in the process of figuring out what is going to end up in the podcast, what's going to stay on Twitter spaces only. Like I feel we spent the entire morning discussing that, but we made some very good progress. So I'm, I'm very excited for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. What, one of my main reflections on all of this stuff is people, are, well, either people don't realize, or I guess I never realized the amount you need to think about logistically to execute on a media plan. So yes, we are producing X amount per week at the moment, but there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes in order to even push that content out. It's one thing actually finding the time to record and do that. There's also the planning, there's also the pre-marketing, there's also the post-marketing. And particularly when you've got a number of things going on at the same time, there's just a kind of a cycle or it's interesting workflow that you absolutely must work through for things to be working op- optimally. And yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff to work through and it's very interesting. And when you're adding pieces to the, to the, to the workflow, it uh, becomes a bit complicated, but also interesting to kind of strategize about. Yeah, I mean, the complexity has certainly increased. Like, I remember when I worked in in, in marketing departments or in social media, um, for smaller projects, I used to be doing very well without a marketing and content plan because it was just able, you know, to schedule that in my head and, and follow my own schedule. But with all the moving pieces, with the Discord, with the content that we produce there, with the Twitter spaces, with the podcast, it's really getting a lot. And... It's it's definitely good that we put it all on paper and, and strategized. And I'm still experimenting a bit with uh, uh, time zones and timing and, and scheduling stuff and not trying to get in the way of the biggest spaces, um, et cetera, and just finding a, a schedule that works for our audience and obviously it also works for us is challenging, really. Yeah, that's the other main point, isn't it? Like finding a... It, operating in a environment which is 24 7 also kind of seven days a week and also with interested parties all over the world is really really tricky and I, I think that that was one of the main conclusions we came to just now as we were talking things out it was like we, we were kind of asking the question well when could we do this when could we do this oh would this work for that time zone would it work for another time zone but ultimately if it doesn't work for us long term it's just not doable. So um, thinking first what works for us and then thinking, okay, well, does this work for everyone else? I know it's kind of backwards because you're meant to think of the consumer first. But, you know, for example, if the best time was midnight for our time zone, it's just not practical for us to operate on in that in that way. So the question becomes, well, how do we, 
how do we do it at a time that works for us and within a reasonable time frame how do we make that work for everyone else too yeah exactly and and if it doesn't work for us we cannot really produce it in a consistent basis which is ultimately the thing that we absolutely want to do right yeah and also in a way there'll be various live things happening but the beauty of some of the stuff now from uh, certainly from the data that i've seen is that lots of the stuff can be caught up on and people do catch up and sometimes if anything what all the streaming services have shown us is that people will be very happy to actually not want to tune in live and just be able to tune in when they are free because people are quite time poor in general and want something that is more convenient so maybe in a way people prioritize the live thing too much because it's not it's nice to have but often people just want something on demand yeah that's true and that's something we've not only seen with our spaces but we also see with with the biggest spaces in in crypto and nft really that yes they have a certain amount of people that listen in life even if it goes you know in in the four digits but way more people than listen to the recording yeah i think that's super important so yeah maybe triple digits won't be so far away as we as we move forward but um getting into this week's episode properly it feels pretty positive in nft world at the moment wouldn't you say yeah it's 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 quite a nice sentiment i mean we've... how how has this changed why do we go one week from being in despair and depression to next week feeling great about ourselves why does this keep happening hope <laughs> i think hope is a big <laughs> one kind of um because fundamentally nothing has changed right the world didn't get a better place we didn't yeah. fix any of the macro issues people get used to it to a certain extent and well boris johnson lost his job in the uk that's true that's true yeah i don't know if that's had a effect on the markets at all you think um boris uh, johnson is pumping the nft market overall boris johnson, <laughs> boris johnson lost his job as prime minister and has decided to sweep all the floors <laughs> in his uh, free time now <laughs> <laughs> yes this is what has happened interesting interesting yeah no but i don't know like probably people get used to it and then get used to a you know um more difficult market situation and consolidate into more into nfts again i think there also was an interesting um statistic by nftstatistics.eth who put out that the buying um volume in terms of um individual buyers buying on average, three NFTs per day on OpenSea is at an all-time high. So it seems like some confidence is back in terms of, okay, we are surviving this. We are not going to zero and we can very well go back to buying NFTs, especially as they're like very cheap in terms of US dollar value, certainly. Could be a bit of that sentiment. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a move into and i think we probably touched on this a while ago there's been a move into kind of the more quality projects and i've noticed for example x copy has been people have been getting into that quite heavily again mm -hmm. i have i have a set of what they called the can't even remember the name now are the the green yellow and multicolored 
god i can't even remember the name <laughs> i have, I have a, a, a triptych of of that though and that's been moving as well as the grifters in particular yeah I, one of the one of the things i keep thinking about is the just the amount that the ident the identity inverted commas nfts will move like x copy's got all this art all this cool work but the face which you can put as your profile picture will still just keep selling to such a degree and i know there's a smaller supply there i think there's only 666 mm-hmm. but i don't know i keep coming back to that but the the broad point seems to be that yes people are uh, willing to buy again but only at the very top end um yeah what what have you thought about that top end what have you noticed um crypto punks are getting closer again to the board ape uh, floor and like crypto punks are almost up to 80 ETH floor board apes also moved a bit up there like at 99 right now they they are closing the gap and especially the blue chip art trend continued um gazers had a massive run last week was quite happy mm. to see the gazer floor being like at 14 ETH I think it's now at 11 or 12 Fidenzas and very fortunately the squiggle floor tripled after i said that i wanted to buy but i mm-hmm. did not buy so that was fun <laughs> uh, i i i'm happy that i listened to your <laughs> advice and i did get one <laughs> well i'm i'm happy i gave my advice to you for you to take advantage of but didn't do it myself <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah squiggle as i said so iconic but yeah so there's been s- significant movement on these pieces which are perceived to be uh unique and quality in some way right yeah absolutely what did you think about there was the the, the obviously the board ape yacht club uh yuga labs nfts are premium nfts undoubtedly mm. what did you think about the i saw this graph where the board ape uh, kennel club uh, buying activity literally shot up in a straight line and once again people started to suggest that there may have been insider trading going on there what's your i don't know much about the kennel club but what what's what's your take on that situation yeah so the thing is um the 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 kennels the dogs they always had a place in the roadmap and it was like always pretty evident that they're gonna play an important role in the future right um and it's kind of funny to see like every time we see a sudden pump in any nft project really right now there's now always a you know larger and larger group of people screaming that's insider trading and Sometimes it might be the case that it's insider trading, but I think most of the times it's really, you know, someone's picking up a rumor, spreading a rumor, pointing out something in a roadmap or pointing out something that's, you know, already was evident, um, but has like the massive reach or somehow gets viral. And then people start buying and then people see other people buying and they FOMO in. And we get like such a massive increase, sudden massive increase in floor price. And then probably the people that missed it scream insider trading. Um, I don't know. I don't think there was like any kind of insider trading with the board eight candles. Um, yeah, it's super hard to say. Like, I'd, it's yeah. I I definitely don't know the answer, but I definitely think 
as soon as there's momentum, people just start to assume that. But obviously, there's so many times where people start piling into something, and it can't always be the case that there's insider trading on something. I mean, the squiggles have tripled in the last week, basically, or the last yeah. 10 days at least. That's not insider trading. It's just people have decided that you know they're wildly undervalued for what they are. Yeah, that, um, and they're also on the... Uh, Wake Me United, they also mm. made it on the Adidas um, soccer outfit. Yeah, that's true. I think that was known for some time, though. Like, yeah, they, that it, was public. It, that was public. That was very much public for a long time. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, but yeah, as you said, there's a definite increase or general improvement in overall sentiment in the NFT market. It suddenly doesn't feel so terrible to be holding. <laughs> many nfts at the moment uh portfolios are probably recovering to some degree albeit you know to a small degree given how far we've fallen and the value of eth uh the the eth decline over the last month or two yeah absolutely i've, I've even seen it on super rare where one of the pieces that i held in my collection um suddenly a, a little bidding war started on that on the weekend and it ended up with moderates um, uh, buying Toth by by George Boyer, where I have the NFT and I also have the physical one. You can see it right now in my background. Ah, it's very the nice. physical matching the NFT. Um, and then people commented on the sale. Oh, it's it's good to see moderates back at buying art. So apparently, across the board, um, you know, activity is increasing, and it seems like some people are who took a break are, you know getting back into the space which is a nice sentiment to see yeah that's very nice so you, you mentioned like i like every now and again go moving the conversation into the art stuff is quite nice because it's a welcome relief from the i don't know the constant shilling of various profile picture projects but you said in real life you've also been doing some art stuff is that right like what, what have you in particular the last week you've been up to a few things what's been going on there yeah, last week I had a um, series of meetings at some top tier galleries in Vienna and I wanted to explore what their, you know, thought or stance is on NFTs in general. And um, so basically there's like two types of galleries, right? There's galleries that buy all the pictures and then sell them. And there's galleries that uh, basically sell the pictures that they don't own for a commission to potential collectors. Um, and I kind of wanted to figure out what their general take on on NFTs is. And it was interesting to see that even like the top tier galleries who are like, nope, NFTs are not of any relevance to us or our audience right now. Like we find the technology interesting and we're going to point you to some galleries who, you know, have that customer segment who might buy NFTs, but they are not for us because our customers don't want that really. They want to have physical pictures. There was like really the minority that, you know, turned me down from the get-go. And even they were like very friendly and polite and helping out to connect me to other galleries. And it was interesting to see that like the general consensus was we see that NFTs and digital art are incredibly relevant. Um, we see that this is the type of art that, you know, our generation is going to buy that people were accumulating money over the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to buy massively. Right now, 
um, our customers are in their 50s, 60s, or 70s mostly. And it's not for them, but we know and we are very aware of the fact that we have to transition into NFTs because mm. the new customers who are going to accumulate wealth, they will have a way higher demand for NFTs, but they are not sure how to really make the first step. They very much like the thought of fidgetals, so like of physical artwork that comes with an NFT or vice versa. Mm. Um, and they kind of need help on that onboarding part, on that process. Um, they have a very positive stance towards it, but they need help to make that change or that transition kind of. Yeah, that, I, I mean, I think that's completely fair. That's completely fair from them in from their perspective. They probably have a bunch of people. And that actually echoes what someone said at the Proof of People uh, conference, NFT conference festival that I went to last week where someone from Philips, the auction house in London, was speaking about uh, people, uh, you know, their, their kind of typical buyer and explaining that, yes, people were interested, but there's just such a barrier in terms of education, understanding, security. There's all sorts of things that are in the way of the typical customer accessing this digital art in its current form so yeah it makes sense that people would like to have a reasonable compromise of digital with physical just so it kind of makes sense to them yeah absolutely and it also there was also an interesting point that one of the galleries gallerists pointed out was like we have a gallery a prime location in the inner city couple hundred of square meters it is incredibly expensive to, you know, rent out that space to maintain it and to use it to showcase art to people. You know, 99% of the people don't buy because it's just too expensive. And like looking at nice art, and of course the galleries are public um, to to the most extent. And they, you know, they did think about that if they would sell digital first and would have like I don't know any kind of metaverse experience the logistics of the business model would completely change. And I personally think it's a natural evolution. Like if I think back when, you know, Gary V in, what was it in 2007, 2008 was like, you know, he's going to sell wine on the internet at his dad's store. And everyone was like, who wants to buy wine on the internet? And he was like, everybody will do that. And like, we kind of mm. see the same with art right now. Like people yeah, want to experience art physical. I want to see the painting and that's, going to change as well like we shifted so much to buying um, online I don't see why art would be any different from that really yeah and I think there'll, there'll always be a space for this physical element what they should do from my perspective is because I've seen this work really well in London and you know, I just watch people as they go about their business when they do attend these physical spaces is when people have these VR capable goggles or headsets or whatever and they have a proportion of their physical in real life space dedicated to that people are queuing up for it like people want to put that headset on and find out like what the hell is going on in this world and it's an interesting novel experience they enjoy it i think that galleries and other similar people must incorporate that at a minimum like you've got to allow people 
to experience that future thing. And as you say, most people don't buy, but just having that novel experience is something which people do go to the shops for. Because at the moment, the problem with retail physical spaces is that if you can't, like there's no reason for anyone to come in because they could just buy whatever online. Yeah. So retail physical spaces need to consider, well, what can I give you or offer you that you can't get Mm -hmm. from the comfort of your sofa? And assuming that not everyone has an AR, VR capable headset, which they don't at the moment, realistically, that would be a way to create an experience in-house, which is something unique, something novel, which would move people off their sofa. Yeah. If I, I absolutely agree, and I would even go further, like if I were a gallery, what I would do is I would get a bunch of, you know, museum grade screens, um, beautiful OLED screens, display art. You could display anything from super rare, open sea, whatever you think that fits with, you know, the general style of what your audience likes to buy. Like imagine having a Fidenza there and, you know, you people can see it just like they could see a physical painting. And if someone's like, hey, I want to buy that, then you could either be like, okay, there's more of this. I'm showing you some more Fidenzas. Or yes, you want to buy that. Okay, I'm going to do the deal for you. I'm going to buy it off OpenSea. I'm going to move it to a ledger. I'm going to give you the ledger, help Mm. you store that securely. And I'm going to give you one of those digital frames, display your Fidenza on it. um, And I'm going to charge a premium for that. Like Fidenza floor is, what is it? 110 ETH right now? charge, I don't know, 10% for that on top, make it 120 ETH. Um, and you don't have to spend the, you know, 110K on the Fidenza just to display it in your gallery. And if you make a sale, you then buy it. You need way less cash flow to manage operations. You can cater way faster to the needs of your customer and you're way more flexible because like all the galleries who are like are doing exhibitions, they were like, um, we do one, two, three, maybe four exhibitions per year because the logistics and cost make it impossible to do more than that. But they would love to have like a monthly event or gathering. So, but yeah, this is what I would do if I had a gallery. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. There's definitely space for them to innovate for sure. Um, one of the things I saw last week was well i was at the proof of people event and i did some speaking on the topic of web3 and the generational opportunity there and it was kind of cool because again physical spaces getting people together this is the other element which i think people need to consider getting people together in physical spaces does still matter and one of the things we were talking about was you know how much of our online presence and online marketing translates into sales. And I think one of the things I'm thinking about more and more now is that in the end, you simply just can't, you can't replace these physical interactions. Like I could have delivered that talk on Web3 and the opportunities online and people would like appreciate it. It would, just, it would be the transfer of knowledge and that would be fine. But there's something about doing it face-to-face in front of people and then people can ask the questions there and then. And it was a really good attendance. So I was in this kind of smaller room. I wasn't on the main stage. I was on a separate stage. and But it was like completely packed. A lot of uh, interested listeners from a wide range of age groups and backgrounds 
a lot of questions after and some good questions as well, being quite skeptical about Web3, which was good. But something about doing it in real life, which was, there's something different there. There's a different energy. And I think people need to lean into that hard when they consider how to keep creating experiences in this space. It's hard to pinpoint the difference, but certainly there is a massive difference if you speak in real life or attend an in real life event as opposed to doing it merely online. But you said there were a couple of uh, critical questions um, that you appreciated. Do you Did any in particular stand out and how did you tackle it? Yeah, so I think one of one of the good questions was from someone who was fairly confident that there is no good reason why a company would want to decentralize. Like it doesn't make any sense from a company perspective for, and he was giving examples. So I don't know, Apple, Facebook, very, very profitable companies. He was saying, well, why would they want to decentralize? Why would you create this whole other organizational body, like a DAO, for example, who suddenly has some sort of governance over you when they are neither qualified nor experienced enough to to run, to run uh, anything really to do with your product or things of that nature. And I think one of the ways I answered was, look, I think there's some confusion as to the term DAO right now, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, is very, very muddy. Like it's not clear what a DAO is or what it represents because what it literally means is that there is an organization that essentially operates without anyone under without anyone ruling it it's meant to operate almost like a like a smart contract where people come together to operate but there's no hierarchy there's no decision making it's like communally done but practically there's there's real difficulties around that and one of the things DAOs struggle with is participation, is voting and governance related to that. So I thought it was, he raised some valid points. But if you were to get rid of the word DAO and say, well, why why might a company release some NFTs and create a group around it? Like forget the word DAO. Now, is there a reason why Apple or Facebook, or let's take Apple, for example, would, would want to release 10,000 NFTs? And the answer to that, would be, well, that could be interesting. Would ten, would ten thousand people in the world want to say they Apple have chosen four colors for the next iPhone? Do you want to let a group of your ten thousand super fans pick the fifth one? Like, do you want to let these ten thousand people, because the product is often so high in demand, uh, would you want to allow ten thousand people to get the guaranteed spot when to buy when it comes through? when the next iPhone ships. And it's like, well, that's that's actually very doable, which means that the NFT is a completely whole different revenue stream. Like that doesn't exist right now. That's not something which a company is able to capitalize on because it doesn't exist. It's a whole new stream. And would it be annoying to have 10,000 people giving their opinions on certain things? Potentially. But the point is, this is a whole new stream and you can define very clearly look you will get to pick the fifth color of the iphone you will get priority for 
when certain products launch but no you do not design you're not going to say how bright the screen should be you're not going to be designing engineering the phone inside out we have people for that already so i think there's definitely scope for people to to work with some of their super fans in a way by creating a group of people but i think the main confusion on reflection was that people think of the word dao and they think that you're literally and they think that they talk about the term decentralization and they think you're literally giving away all of your power in your company and yes that's one thing that people do pursue i don't think it's necessarily the right thing to pursue but there's all sorts of other options which are far more reasonable yeah and i mean to a certain extent like all the companies you know uh, that you mentioned are already decentralized because they are publicly traded and you know, shareholders are spread all over the world and they do have some certain say in the company, obviously, but they are not the ones to, as you said, design the new iPhone. And I find it the the other point that you made, you know, connecting to your super fans, that is so viable because it reminds me so much of um, my time working at the big four in consulting. And we had one project with a telecommunications company and they really, really, really tried to find a structure to implement open innovation. So open innovation basically is you try to create or foster innovation outside of the company to have your customers being, you know, be the ones who come up with new innovations for your company because they are using the product every day. They have the feedback and you want to get that you know, source and stream of information and create it, create an inflow into your company and foster that open innovation process. And they struggled because they struggled to speak to the customers. They struggled to identify who are the super fans and they struggled to incentivize them to be like, okay, if I have an idea, how do I reach you? Who do I talk to? How could I even, you know, make sure that someone listens and then decides if it gets implemented or not? And why would I even do that? Why would I, you know, use my time to do that? And NFTs um, definitely are a beautiful way to to help with this, especially if it's as it's so transparent, you know, who owns your NFT and who's your super fan, really. Yeah, definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the way to answer that question, which also accepts the real challenges that the person was making. Like if you if you think that decentralization means which to be fair, decentralization does. It does mean that you're meant to be giving away governance. So the point that he was making was not uh, irrelevant, but it was mixing a couple of things, I think. And there are all sorts of ways to opportunities in Web3, which is not to do with decentralization. Like it doesn't have to be decentralized for you to produce a product on the blockchain. So yeah, that was a super cool talk. It was also really awesome. Uh, three days event really well attended it was done by vertical crypto who i'm learning more and more about she's really lovely and i was super grateful to have the opportunity to speak there it was a really really enjoyable time i liked it a lot and was also it... i don't know if you have you been to london before and gone to fabric i yes yes actually yes have you been to fabric mm -hmm. yeah so it's in that like i mean it's actually the first time i've been there i'm a londoner but hadn't gone before it's a it's a quite a it's like an iconic place in london and what they wanted to do was host it in a place of kind of music and culture 
as a kind of representation that look what we're doing now in this space is also very cultural and kind of pushing the space uh, culture forward and that's sort of what fabric has represented for a long time as well so really cool are they planning to do it next year um, again or was it a one-off event yeah i i hope so I, i i don't know about their future plans but i think if um they definitely have the team to pull it off it was amazing because i think they they'd they'd established all of these screens and all of this apparatus inside of the club which is underground and it's a club ultimately <laughs> and it was like really hard to navigate so it was a huge logistical operation and really quite impressive that they were able to do that so that was pretty impressive from from their perspective yeah absolutely um, sounds like it so thinking about <laughs> we want to move on to one of the interesting news stories in nft world which was the saudis mint over the weekend uh one point that you might not actually know is that on, on the 9th it, it was actually coordinated with eid mm-hmm. like as in specifically to do that, to do that which again as part of their marketing strategy probably quite smart also their marketing strategy in general was pretty well it certainly got a hell of a lot of engagement i'm just going to say for the people who don't know the saudis are let me tell you if you don't know what the saudis are oh that's weird when you search for the saudis it doesn't actually come up with the nft there apparently there are other saudis in the world okay here we go <laughs> the saudis Oh, there's not, there's not a great description. 5,555 Saudis are max bidding. So the, this is like a CryptoPunk derivative project, which are focused on, on you know, which are, well, how do you describe them? A derivative of the CryptoPunks, but in a way that imitates or they're depicted as Saudis. Where do we start on this? Legendary. I think you you made a very good point about their marketing and they um, particularly mentioning that it's going to be a, a, a free mint on a significant date. Um, all the content, all the memes um, that they created, the lingo that they used, like really worked. Let's let's say let's say it worked. Engagement they got is great, but I also feel like it's a very fine line to walk between you know playing with with some cliches but also being like politically correct and not offending um people it's very yeah. difficult to navigate that yeah i completely agree i because this we were just talking off air about this i can't believe that someone didn't try to cancel it already like it's fairly uh, i mean there's two points to make a yes it's dealing with some clichés and cultural stereotypes as such but b there's there's sincere attempts at comedy to be made here right like the dubbing for example of videos where they um where they kind of have clips of various shakes and then they put english subtitles of what is being said although it's obviously not the real words being said like Some of that stuff is funny. Like it's take that's someone's art where they have literally 
on delivery or the way that the the people are speaking and the the language that they've chosen it's funny like people have put a, a decent amount of effort into those things quite kind of high effort comedic memes but yes they're playing into certain stereotypes um it seems like they're creating a trend right because last time we talked you know about someone criticizing or stating that pixel vault isn't successful because they're on pixel vault derivatives and mm -hmm. by scrolling twitter today you know off air before we started recording we found what we found the turks um who are a saudi derivative you found the basically the The, the Jews, the moonbirds depicted oh, the Saudi moonbirds, yeah. the like the unofficial birds. pets, the Saudi birds. That was the name. So, you know, I think I think derivatives are a good measure ultimately to see if, you know, the idea or the concept that you had is successful because people want to copy it. And it's still like it's copying something is the highest form of recognition. It's funny, though, because you, you now think that we're now in the stage of like the derivative of the derivative. So now we're thinking of Saudi birds as a derivative of Saudis. Yeah. And actually, Saudi birds is a derivative of, well, moonbirds? It's a moonbird. Cri crypto punks, in a way. It's a moonbird derivative uh, that takes cult, quote unquote cultural inspiration from the Saudis. And the Saudis ultimately are still a crypto punk derivative. Um, and. Kind of, kind of similar in spirit to the Habibis, I'd say. Hmm. So, but so how do we make sense of this? Like, I think, why, why would you say this has become popular? Um, well, I would really make the point and be like, because people are specifically trying to copy that success story. They've seen the uh, massive ETH volume um, in the, what was it? Four. What's what's the overall volume of the Saudis by now? Let's quickly check. It is six six point six k on OpenSea, right? So they've seen the massive success. They've been all over Twitter, and really, that people try to copy that and try to create the Turks, try to create the Saudi birds, and very very similar to when the goblins showed up, and we you know we've seen. Hobotown, Orktown, Elftown, copying or trying to copy Goblin Town. So that's like probably when people start copying you that you set a trend with something you did. But what do you think? So yeah, I agree. I agree with those points. Like there's definitely the success element that they're trying to uh, imitate. But why do you think the Saudis, either as a meme or just as the nft like how did they get their momentum do you think it was just for the, through the strength of their marketing and their 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 memes essentially the marketing yeah the marketing the fact that they started depicting various influencers in the crypto space as oh, yeah. a saudi okay. version of themselves <laughs> and they reacted to it like i don't know if there has been you know some background deals on that and they reached out to them or if they genuinely were like hey this is funny seeing myself as a saudi version of my pfp or my actual picture or whatever it was because they not only did the crypto influencers they also did elon musk um, jeff bezos etc also mm -hmm. like the narrative that the saudis are here to save our bags basically 
and that the oil yes. money is gonna pump into um, into the crypto market. Like the overall macro yeah, a, narrative that helpful. they played is yeah. is helpful, and also connecting to the influencers. And as I said, we don't know if they genuinely reacted to that because this is how they became aware of the project, or if they have been reaching out to them privately. But they really managed to speak to a lot of subgroups and um, subcommunities um, in the NFT space and create like this general awareness and buzz. Yeah, my my general take on it is what well, I yeah my my general take is I think it's fine. I I know that there were certain people who might get offended by it, and I guess the question would be, well are there any say you're allowed to do it about this group this is what people would say i'm not saying i think these things but this is the argument right okay you're allowed to do it about this group what about if they do it about another group or if they do it about another group of people like is there a type of group of people that is ab is is not that you're not allowed to do these derivatives about or you're not allowed to poke fun at or you're not allowed to to use cultural stereotypes or cliches about as a way to create something funny to make people laugh i'm usually of the opinion that if the sincere intention is to just have a laugh and not take things too seriously i would usually think that that's appropriate obviously there's a line somewhere where things become disrespectful but my general take is that i thought that i just thought the memes were too good like it was too good and also it was unique like i hadn't seen people put random people's faces on the thing i hadn't seen people do like such good um dubbing where they did the subtitles the subtitling was done really well from a kind of comedic almost artistic perspective i actually thought it was fairly high uh, people will say oh it's a derivative project it's not high effort but I, I think people would have spent serious amount of time working on that. Okay, this is what the people in the video were doing. I'm going to choose this language in order to match it properly. So I actually think it was fairly high effort in in a weird way. Yeah, in a way, it's marketing as an art. Yeah. the The interesting question is, and I I don't I don't really know. Like, are they here to build the community? Are they here to build a long term roadmap? But um, I absolutely agree with your notion that there was a lot of effort put in, in, you know, executing on the marketing to get to the point where they are right now. I mean, they minted on the weekend and we are speaking about a 0.75 ETH floor. Hmm. Yeah, that's fairly significant. And one of the other things we wanted to talk about in relation to them was the very strong reaction that there was to what people thought was an influencer pump, right? So people thought that, well, this was a free mint and there were either multiple influencers or one influencer in particular who sold a significant number kind of straight away, just out of the gate, just sold. And therefore it was tarnished as a kind of well, this is just an influencer-based project. If it weren't for them, it wouldn't have taken off at all. First, before we dive into the actual details of the influencer, do you think that's fair when people say like, okay, this is an influencer-based project? Because as you said, marketing is a reality of the situation. You've got to do certain things to to get the 
to get the word out on your project, right? I think it goes two ways, you know, as long as people listen to their favorite influencers, buy what their influencer tells them to buy, there's obviously going to be projects who will try to connect with said influencers and get them to promote and market the project, right? So those those two things go together. And yes, the project can be driven by influencers um, and help with the marketing, but ultimately that's not going to decide whether this project is going to be here to you know build in the long term, in the long run, and build a community, or if it's just a quick pump and dump. It can be it can be both, and it's not ultimately it's not relevant if it you know was pumped by influencers or not. In my opinion, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's just there's a marketing reality of things. You've got to try various avenues as a business to get people's attention. So it's kind of not relevant from from the influencer perspective, though. So the influencing question was Farouk, who lots of people, I mean, it seems to be the case you either love him or you hate him from the general sentiment. And to be fair to him, like lots, he's got a huge following. Like lots of people do uh, fight, think he's very, very useful for the space and does a great job at, you know, hosting, providing information, supporting people. But the, the, the thing in question here was that supposedly people were allowed to mint two, or if you won the raffle, maybe you were allowed to mint two, but he, for some reason, was able to mint 10. And so naturally, that's a huge, a huge disproportionate allocation. And then it was sort of argued that he was dumping on his, this again, this is me summarizing the various tweets that I've seen. Some people were saying that he was dumping on his followers as, you know, when he sold all of those 10 NFTs, which he minted. What's your take on that? Yeah, like, as you said, if you look at it on an objective level, people typically could mint two. He minted 10 from what it looks like he minted it himself. It wasn't minted to him from what we could tell from the contract. And after minting, he listed and sold them. So I don't really see it as dumping on his followers, really, because he wasn't like, you know, constantly shilling that project. I think he tweeted about it once and I don't know, I'm not in his spaces, probably mentioned it there as well, I guess. But it wasn't like he's, you know, hosting spaces with the Saudis, building up momentum, etc., pumping the floor price and then be the one to open the floodgates and dumping all of his supply. He straight sold after mint. And mm-hmm. if if there was like a marketing agreement in place um, with the Saudis and Farouk, which was like, you share our tweet, you get a higher allocation in the initial mint and you can sell that and that's your pay that's fair then the question really should be was it disclosed as an ad or not that i don't know because i didn't follow that and i am always of the opinion you know this should be done transparently and advertising should be disclosed as advertising always but i don't really see the dump on your follower element i see where people get upset i see you know that in the overall context it looks a bit shady it doesn't look very good in a reputational way i don't really understand like i think that farouk is aware of if he does something like that that the optics aren't the best and that he will get a backlash on social media for doing that and i don't think that it's worth to do that for like 
20 ETH, 30 ETH or however much he made with selling those 10 Saudis. But I specifically don't see it as dumping on his followers because it wasn't like the time to build hype, momentum, blah, 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 pump the floor price and then dump. Yeah, that's kind of what I think as well. I think I think the dumping on followers thing has to be separated from it because if, if he's not tweeting about it, and this is not just about uh, Farouk, right? This is about how influencers or people who are used to market conduct themselves in the space. And if there's no, if there isn't an agreement in place between two parties and they're not uh, paid to to communicate regularly about the the nft to get the message out it can't really be decided that that's dumping on the followers because and also one of the interesting things we were discussing off air also is that people who are prominent people are often used to a certain degree by projects by sending them things for free now we've looked at the contract and we said that we think this was not one of those cases but it is a bit of a strange position to be in when you get given a bunch of assets and then what you're just not allowed to sell them because you are the person that you are even though you've hadn't you've got no agreement with the people so the interesting thing i would like to know and this is why i've honed in on that 10 aspect i'd kind of want to know well why was there 10 and everyone else got two because if it was just two i think that maybe the reaction on twitter in general would have been karma because it's just like well you got the same as everyone else probably nothing to see here and just the fact that it was five times more than everyone else that made people think hmm something's up yeah and again this is like a lack of transparency because like everyone in this space is you know loving that blockchain is so transparent and i know i keep probably repeating myself you know through all of our podcasts but ultimately if the blockchain is transparent and you love the transparency about it then be transparent in the way you do business. If um, this is not referring to Farouk, right? Like if I think, for example, about us and 32 Dreams, and we went into PO spaces to, you know, talk about what we are building with 32 Dreams. And PO is super transparent about that. Like it was mentioned a couple of times throughout the entire Twitter space. This is today's sponsors. This is B-Check and Legendary. They are working on 32 Dreams before the interview, in the beginning, in the end. And they're like disclosing, okay, this is a sponsored um, appearance that we were on that podcast. And this is a fair thing to do, right? And they wouldn't be like, oh no, they invited us because we are so cool. No, it was a sponsored thing. Um, and that's a fair play. That's, you know, a fair play in marketing. That's a fair play in trying, in, in us trying to reach a new audience. And, and this is like, if I, you know, this is like my own moral standard that I want to disclose and be transparent about anything, about everything that I do. And probably like influencers who navigate themselves into a spot where they're like publicly criticized for, you know, dumping something quote unquote on the followers or whatnot could avoid that if they just were transparent about what's going on in the background. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with that point. It's ultimately about transparency and I, I sympathize with them only to the extent that sometimes things are done out like without their consent. Like I have read a very variety of things where people are just like, well, no one asks me when they send all this stuff to my wallet. Like half the time they don't even know stuff is there. 
so I sympathize to that extent. But in this instance, I would just like to know uh, why the 10, basically. That's the kind of interesting point. If there was a re- if you know, if the answer to the why 10 was, you know, that's just what they allowed me to do. Because, I mean, you know, it's not unforeseeable for them to think, well, it would, he should mint 10. If he could mint 10, then maybe that's just still good for the project, even if he sells. Because then again, that, because if you think about it, think about it from this way. He mints 10, he sells 10. Everyone gets annoyed about it on Twitter. Then so much more publicity for the project. I don't know if people would think about it to that degree, whether you were the project thinking, right, if we allow this one person to mint 10 and they do and they sell, then that's going to create a complete storm on Twitter. And therefore, that's going to be great publicity. I don't know if people would think about it to that degree, but it definitely got people got people thinking about it. I, I certainly think this is the case sometimes because, like, let's say any publicity is good publicity is a very old one. It's a play, a well-known play in the playbook of you know marketing, PR, and publicity stunts. So I don't know if this was the case in that instance, but I'm certainly that this quote-unquote trick was was used a couple of times to create controversy around something like Beanie loved to do that to create controversy to make people and timelines full of people speaking about the same thing because he was controversial about a project yeah it's kind of an art as well in itself isn't it yeah um let's move on to one one more thing before we close I I know you wanted to I kind of want to discuss this from the business angle. Um, you said in Wolf Game did Wolf Game, which is a really cool game, that is probably the only really successful. Well, there's other successful blockchain games, but it's one of the main things that on Ethereum, which has been operating for a long time now, which has built this awesome community of super fans of the game. And it's kind of been operating in this really interesting way. They had a farmer's reveal in the last few days, I think, is what you said. Mm -hmm. And what did they do to make that process, thinking about the business angle, like what did they do to make that process good? Yeah, I think one sentence before I get to speak about the farmers is that what makes the Wolf Game community so strong is like the amount of detail that they put and the amount of work in detail that they put into everything that they do because they are aware as like 99% of the project, they don't have the full game out there, but what they have and what they put out there, they make sure that it's done in a really you know, unique way and really well executed. And for the farmer reveal, basically, um, you had like a reveal animation, which was a GIF that was like totally on brand with, with Wolf game. Um, and Roxel, um, like technology NF on Twitter, he looked at 200 different farmer reveal animations and found out, or 200 farmer reveal animations and found out um, that there were at least six different animations that he could find and that all kind of hinted at different skills or traits or functions that the farmers would have in the upcoming game. And also like from a, you know, marketing, going back to marketing, because we talked so much about it in this episode, um, they made it in a way that you can instantly share your, you know, farmer reveal on Twitter, you get the GIF, you get the 
um, the image files to attach them to your tweet. And again, you make people talk about you. You have this different kind of animations and people, you know, start to think what they're really about. Is um, Does this reveal animation mean that my farmer might be particularly good at acquiring followers or particularly be good at finding rare items because there was a metal detector in the animation, which was also an item used in a previous game, in the cave game that they had. So they are really managing with all the detail that they put into the into the reveals, into everything that they do to create like a very strong lore that ultimately transpires into bonding the community together because despite the full game is not out there, they have a lot to talk about, which is what's really, you know, helping to, to grow as a community. And this is what I find so fascinating about Wolf Game. Yeah, I agree. I think they've done some very cool things in terms of maintaining and sustaining interest and excitement as they wait for the full game to develop and also the amount of detail that they put into all sorts of even their in real life events in new york from what i heard was that was amazing pretty pretty great so uh that's definitely one to watch um awesome legendary another good episode that hour's gone pretty quick i think um yeah yeah uh good stuff let's uh wrap it up there beautiful Talk soon.